the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 Corinthians. gives thanks and he breaks it and he says to his disciples at this Passover meal he says this is my body which is broken for you take and eat in remembrance of me now you have to put yourself on the sandals of these disciples okay for 1400 years the Jewish people up to this point at the time of Christ for 1450 years the Jewish people have been celebrating Passover with one meaning that the unleavened bread was a reminder of when they left Egypt in haste And now Jesus is coming along saying, okay, this unleavened bread, this actually points to me. Whether you grew up in the church or outside of it, whatever your background may be, we all hear the word communion and have some impression of what that means. Depending on what kind of church you're most familiar with, our ideas can vary widely. As Pastor Gary will explain in today's message, some of the doctrines we've adopted are not scriptural at all, and you may even be better off not having any strongly formed opinions as we examine this sacred act in its scriptural context. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection, subscribe to the podcast, or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 17. Paul writes, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. That's kind of a sarcastic little jab, okay? If you have the gift of sarcasm, it's in the Bible. Paul had it. (laughs) He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. 
A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. That's a universal man. A man or a woman ought to examine himself or herself before he or she eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. All right, so for those of you who have been with us for the study of 1 Corinthians up to this point, you know this is a messed up church. This is a church in process, and Paul is writing this letter as a corrective epistle to the church because they're doing some things wrong. And already we've looked through the book of 1 Corinthians and we've seen how there are divisions among them. That was chapter 3. There's sexual immorality among them. That's chapter 5. They're suing each other. That's chapter 6. And uh, among all of this, and there are a few other things, you can add to the list of what they're doing wrong, communion or the Lord's Supper. Uh, They were completely mishandling how the Lord's Supper was to be conducted. And to say mishandling is probably being charitable because Paul started this section in verse 17. Look again, the very first verse that I read, verse 17, he says, I have no praise for you for your meetings do more harm than good. So he is rebuking them about the way that they are not handling the Lord's Supper correctly. So we're going to talk about communion. We're going to talk about the Lord's Supper and we're, we're going to talk about what it means, why we practice it, which, according to your traditions, might either be, if you have a tradition, if you have no church background, you're better off than the rest of us, all right? Because not that we should be necessarily ashamed of our heritage. I'm thankful for my heritage in the church. That said, sometimes we can bring baggage and tradition along with us. And so if you're a new believer, you may not necessarily have baggage to bring along. Maybe you're not a believer at all. You're here tonight. You're curious. You're learning. So we're going to talk about something that is important as a doctrine, as an ordinance in the church. So based on your tradition, if you have one, it might be referred to as communion. It might be referred to as the Lord's Supper. It might be referred to as the Eucharist. We're talking the same thing. Now I'm going to tell you where all those terms come from because they all come from the Bible. If you look back to chapter 10, back to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, and notice verse 16... I'll point out to you first where the word communion comes from, why we call this communion. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, Paul says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation, underline that word, participation in the blood of Christ, and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? So it refers to the cup and to the bread. We'll talk about that more as we get into our study. But the word participation in the NIV, which is what the translation I read from, is translated in English communion, if you have a King James Bible or a New King James Bible. It is from the Greek word koinonia. And it means fellowship or communion, the kind that the church can experience on a level unlike regular relationships because koinonia is centered around a common relationship in Christ. And when someone knows Christ 
and another person knows Christ, they can relate to each other and have fellowship on a level that surpasses other kinds of relationships. In fact, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you can go to another church or you can go on a mission field and you can go to some foreign country and you can go into a church and meet people in a foreign country you've never met in your life, but because they know Christ and you know Christ, have you ever noticed that you have like instant camaraderie with them and fellowship and things in common and that the the women are like a sister in Christ and the men are like a brother in Christ to you? That's because of the koinonia, the fellowship that we have with the commonality of knowing Christ. So that word communion, it's not in the NIV, it's participation, but it's King James and New King James. It's the Greek word koinonia. Then we also see the Lord's Supper mentioned here. uh, Look in chapter 17. We read it earlier. Uh, It's in verse uh, 20. Sorry, sorry, not chapter 17, chapter 11, where we were. Chapter 11 and verse 20. And uh, Paul just spells it out. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. So he's rebuking them. I mean, it is the Lord's Supper that they're eating, but he says, you're, you're so mishandling this that it's not really like the Lord's Supper is supposed to be. So there's that term, the Lord's Supper. It's this reference to this Well, Da Vinci painted it as the Last Supper, but uh, it's referred to in the Bible as the Lord's Supper. Uh, And and it also might be, in some of your traditions, uh, referred to as the Eucharist. If you have kind of a a more high liturgical background, maybe Episcopalian, uh, Lutheran, um, uh, some of you with Catholic backgrounds, uh, you might refer to it as the Eucharist. Uh, Commonly, the Baptists refer to it as the Lord's Supper. Other Protestants, just communion. So I don't know what your background might be if you have one, but the word Eucharist uh, comes from here in chapter 11. Uh, Look at verses 23 and 24. In 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, underline those words, given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay, so given thanks, in the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek, it is the word eucharisteo, which is where we get that term eucharist. It is just a Greek word that means thanksgiving. And so based on whatever your background might be, I will probably more commonly refer to this as communion because that's my background, but communion, Lord's Supper, Eucharist, we're talking the same thing. Now, in order to understand exactly what we are talking about, understand that Jesus committed two ordinances to the church, and they are water baptism and communion. Okay, two ordinances that Jesus entrusted to the church as ongoing things that we should practice. An ordinance basically is uh, something prescribed by Jesus and practiced by the church. So Jesus, Jesus set the tone for this. Uh, he talks about water baptism, that not that it's required for salvation, but it is an external act to uh, acknowledge an internal work, that you belong to Christ and so you want to be water baptized. Water baptism identifies with the death and burial, and then you come up out of the water, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's for another night, but for tonight we're going to talk about communion. Again, I'll probably use this term more than Lord's Supper or Eucharist, but that's what we're talking about. It is an ordinance of the church. It is something that Jesus taught us to practice. And in fact, Paul tells us here in chapter 11, we should do it until the Lord comes. 
So it is an ongoing practice of the church since the earliest times when Jesus instituted it. Now, in order to understand what it's all about, we have to go back 3,400 years. The year is 1400, 1450 BC, right around that time period. We're talking about the days of Moses. 1450 BC, the Jewish people were slaves in Egypt. They went down originally as a group of 70, the descendants of Jacob, to escape famine from Israel. They went to Egypt. And when they initially went, and they were reconciled to Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, uh, Joseph, who they thought was dead, revealed himself to his own family and forgave them for mistreating him because they left him for dead and he ended up in Egypt. And Joseph ended up being promoted to the second most powerful position in all of Egypt, which at this time was the most powerful country on earth. Next to Pharaoh himself, Joseph served as like a prime minister of Egypt. And so because Israel was experiencing a famine, Joseph now of a, of a high position in Egypt makes gracious provision for his immediate family. They come down to Egypt to escape the famine and they stay there. But unfortunately, after this one Pharaoh was on the throne and Joseph dies and this Pharaoh dies, the Pharaoh that succeeds him is not favorably disposed to the Jewish people. He enslaves them. They are known in, in this time as the Hebrews, from a, a Hebrew word, haberai, which means shepherds. These are people who tended sheep. And so the Hebrew people or the Jewish people are enslaved for 400 years in Egypt until their cries go up to God after 400 years. And God hears their cries. But now that original group of 70 has multiplied into a few million people. And many of you know the story. God then calls Moses to go back to Egypt and to be the deliverer, the prophet of God, to to lead the people out of captivity to the promised land. God had to use a series of 10 plagues because Pharaoh, the one who was not favorably disposed to the Jewish people, was reluctant to let him go. I mean, he had free slave labor force. And even though it was an inhumane thing to, to make slaves of anybody at any time, He knew that if these people leave, I'm going to lose all my free labor. But God, through a series of 10 plagues, wore Pharaoh down until Pharaoh began to realize that he was incapable of standing up against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so reluctantly, Pharaoh lets the Jewish people go. And when they leave, the last of the plagues that God poured out upon the people of Egypt was the plague of death, that the firstborn of Egypt would die because of their reluctance to let the Jewish people go. You say, that's a drastic thing. It is a drastic thing. But when you're enslaving a few million people, sometimes it takes drastic things to get you to move. And Pharaoh was unwilling to let these people go. And so the plague of death came upon the land of Egypt. But the Jewish people were preserved from that plague of death because God had given instructions. If you mark your home, With the blood of a lamb, slaughter a lamb, one for each family of ten. Take a hyssop branch, dip it in the blood of that lamb, and then paint it over your doors. The tops and the sides of your doors. And God says, when I see the sign of the blood that marks your homes, 
I will pass over your homes and death will not come to you. The Egyptian people did not buy into this. So their homes were not marked with the signs of the blood. But the Jewish people marked their homes with the sign of the blood, the blood of the lamb, by the way that foreshadows the blood of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ, right? Because through faith in Jesus, we pass over from death to life, the Bible tells us. But Passover is the term that came from this event. It is Pesach in Hebrew. And so God then implements with the Jewish people the feast of Passover, which is also linked to the feast of unleavened bread as a way to commemorate what God did by graciously giving life to the Jewish people, passing over their homes and setting them free from slavery of 400 years. So communion or the Lord's Supper comes from the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover because from this great deliverance comes feast that God told the Jewish people, never forget what I've done for you. And so they are to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover. Now they go together. There's a Passover meal that begins the day before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Passover is one day, unleavened bread is seven more days for a total of eight days. Sometimes today it is just simply referred to the entire time as Passover. Uh, But it is literally a day of Passover followed by seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because when the Jewish people left in haste, when Pharaoh finally said, okay, get out of here, go. The people did not mix leaven or yeast with their bread. Thus it didn't rise. They're leaving in haste. They're just going to take... The, the dough that they had without adding the yeast. And so in haste, they leave with unleavened bread, bread without yeast. And God says, now every year, I want you to remember the feast of unleavened bread. And I want you to commemorate it beginning with a dinner to honor the Passover. And the details of the Passover dinner, otherwise known as a Seder, are, are given to us in Scripture. And that's also for another night. I don't want to get bogged down into the weeds of everything. So Passover feast, Passover meal, all of this comes now. I say all this because you have to have the background to know what the Lord's Supper and Communion is all about. It is this very Passover meal, celebrating Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples just before he goes to the cross. Okay. This is that event, again, the Last Supper we refer to it as, when Jesus takes the unleavened bread of Passover, this is bread without yeast, and he gives thanks, and he breaks it, and he says to his disciples at this Passover meal, he says, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Now, you, you have to put yourself in the sandals of these disciples. Okay, For 1,400 years, the Jewish people, up to this point, at the time of Christ, for 1,450 years, the Jewish people have been celebrating Passover with one meaning, that the unleavened bread was a reminder of when they left Egypt in haste. And now Jesus is coming along saying, okay, this unleavened bread, this actually points to me. This actually points to my sacrifice on the cross. And I want you to understand, it's a picture of my body which is going to be broken for you. Because in just 24 hours, Jesus is going to go to the cross. From the time of the Last Supper, just 24 hours, Jesus will be on the cross. And he's telling them in advance, take this bread, divide it among yourselves, eat. But remember, this is my body, which is broken for you. And 
their minds had to have exploded a little bit at the Last Supper because they're thinking this is supposed to be a symbol of deliverance from the slavery of Egypt. And Jesus says, oh, but there's a greater deliverance that every mankind, every person needs to experience, and that's deliverance from sin. And that's the slavery of death. You see, we all are born with the same human condition, and it's called sin, and we're all dying the same painful death, all of us. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So all of us are dying from the same sinful condition. All of us. We're born into sin. Sin nature is, is within us from the moment we are conceived. And we are born sinners and we die sinners. All right? We, we dedicated eight beautiful little babies tonight. They're all beautiful, wonderful, innocent, but sinners. They're just short sinners. Okay, we're bigger sinners. We're older sinners. Now, there's a whole other discussion about children dying in the innocence before they know Christ as their Savior. Okay, that's a whole other discussion. But the point is, we're born into sin, and that's why we sin, and we die as sinners. And so we need a Savior. Jesus, at this last Passover that he shares with his disciples, says, I want you to see this bread in, with new eyes. This unleavened bread, this bread without yeast, is a picture of my life without sin that I'm laying down for you and for the sins of the world. Then he takes the cup. He says, this cup is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. Drink all of it in remembrance of me. What new covenant? New covenant. Listen, your Bibles are separated into Old Testament, New Testament. Same words, Old Covenant, New Covenant. The Old Covenant is a system of works. You strive to be good enough to get to God. The New Testament is about grace, that we can't do enough good works to get to heaven. That's why Jesus dies on a cross for us, so that as many as believed in him, to them that received him, he gave the right to become children of God. What we could not do for ourselves, Jesus did for us, pays the price for our sins. When Jesus is on the cross, you see, he assumes the sins of the world. He takes our sins upon himself, past, present, and future. It's this mysterious, miraculous moment. But on the cross, at that moment, Jesus bore the sins of the whole world. He became the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. He was righteous. He had committed no sin. But he became, the Bible says, he became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's an amazing thing, and it is somewhat mystical in the sense of that it is hard for us to grasp with our human minds, but in that one moment on the cross, your sin, my sin, everything you've ever thought, done, did, or shall do was placed on Christ. And he assumed the punishment intended for us, Isaiah tells us, so that by his stripes, by his crucifixion, we are healed, we are completed, we are made whole. So that now if you believe in what Christ did for you, you don't have to suffer the consequences for your sin. Though all of us should. All of us should end up in hell for what we've done. But God made gracious provision for us and said, I'd want none to perish. No, not one. I want all to come to repentance. And so God gives his son Jesus to die on a cross and says, now I will put all of your sins on my son so that if you believe in him as the atoning sacrifice for your sins, the great exchange, his righteous life for your unrighteous life, he assumes our unrighteousness, takes it on himself on the cross. God says, now, if you believe that my son has paid that for you, by faith in him, you can have your sins forgiven and go to heaven when you die. 
Somebody say amen to that. Amen. Now, this is what Jesus does. See, he takes these Passover elements. This is why we have to understand the history to understand the the present. He takes these Passover elements, unleavened bread, the cup, which in those days would have been wine, but it would have been watered down. It probably wouldn't have even been alcoholic enough that it would have made anybody drunk. But that's a whole other discussion as well. And he takes these elements and he says, now, I want you to, to, to know and understand these elements are symbolic of me, my life, my body, my life without sin, and my blood, the cup, a representation of my blood that I will shed on the cross for you. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection as we dig into the book of 1 Corinthians. The issues and situations that Paul was addressing in this letter to the Corinthian church are the same issues that churches face today. It's bold and courageous that Paul faced those things head on, and it would be negligent for churches today to not do the same. Despite the idolatry and sin that was running rampant in this culture, Paul encouraged the believers to be a light that shines in a dark world. You can be this today in the dark world that surrounds you. Be a light that glows brilliantly and stands out against the dark blanket of sin that surrounds you. If you're ever in the Leesburg, Virginia area, we'd love to meet you in person at Cornerstone Chapel. Stop in for a service this Sunday at 8.30, 10, or 11.45, or join us for our Bible study and fellowship on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Pastor Gary would love to hear your story and how you came to know about the radio ministry of Cornerstone Connection. Find out more details, such as where we're located, at cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have for today, but join us next time to learn more from the book of 1 Corinthians, right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul, that you've got no place to go. But still you know You're not alone Real love is calling Listen, truth opens up your eyes Mercy is waiting for you With every sunrise Hope is an open ocean Jump in and you'll find the cornerstones Your connection run towards your new Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.